This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to the second of the regenerative skill building calls that I host with Climate Farmers, which is a new organization working to promote regenerative agriculture across Europe. Now, these calls are specifically designed for our growing community of farmers around the continent and regenerative agriculture consultants. We listen to their interests and concerns online and then reach out to the experts who can best answer them and offer guidance. In order to receive invitations to participate in the live calls, you can subscribe to the Climate Farmers newsletter on the website or follow the links on our Instagram and our Regenerative Skills Discord server. Now, in this second call, I was joined by my good friend Zach Lokes, who came to speak about his innovative permabed system of integrating perennial crops into the market garden for long-term resilience in both the farm business and the site's ecology. In this session, we cover skills for reading your landscape and imitating natural systems. And that's all before we open things up for listener questions. Now, Zach has been a great contributor to this podcast over the years, and he was actually one of my first contacts to actually come out to Guatemala, where I used to live, and teach a permaculture design certification with me and the team at Atitlan Organics. So be sure to check out some of the previous episodes that I've done with him in the past at regenerativeskills.com, where you'll also find links to where you can buy his books with an exclusive discount code in the show notes for this episode. And also be sure to stick around till the end of this episode to hear the questions that we'll be discussing on the Discord server this week. Now with that out of the way, let me present Zach Lokes. Yeah, just I guess I'll give a little intro too. So my name is Zach Lokes. I'm the author of the Permaculture Market Garden uh, and the Edible Ecosystem Solution. Um, and the first one is about commercial, you know, agroforestry, really efficient um, systems for annuals and perennials in the landscape. And the second book is about uh, modular edible landscape design, uh, which can be expanded on any scale farm all the way down to, you know, urban settings. Um, and I, right now I run the Ecosystem Solution Institute, which works to create various um, solutions that use ecosystem design for home growers, homesteaders, farmers. Um, and we also run a nursery on my farm where we nursery a lot of plants that are uh, plants that we recommend for farms and homes and homesteads. Uh, to increase uh, edible biodiversity on their property for commercial purposes, as well as for um, just home resilience. So that's uh, so I don't uh, produce vegetables anymore as a as a big commercial operation. But um, at one point, I was running a 300 member CSA. I was selling at two urban farmers markets on Saturday and Sunday, uh, and I was doing online uh, sales through an online food co-op. Uh, that brought in from multiple producers to produce a custom basket. So at uh, the peak of my market gardening days, that was that was what I was doing in terms of uh, vegetable production, as well as the small fruits and, and things that I was including in that. And um, yeah, so that's just a little more there. And I guess, sorry, we got our times mixed up. I, yeah. So, I'm not sure how, you know, this, this world in a million time zones, I, I was like, okay, I'm right on time. <laughs> but um, no, yeah. that was my bad. I'll take the blame on that. Thanks for the introduction. And, and like you're saying, you, well, so you first wrote the book, The Permaculture Market Garden, which talked about integrating permaculture concepts into more of the high efficiency and stripped down necessities of 
of market gardening and making that a profitable enterprise. Do you want to start by talking about kind of balancing that efficiency and diversity for the health of the ecosystem in a market garden setting? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my previous work and the work that we're working on right now through the Institute, um, it can be encapsulated in our permabed system, uh, which really is about understanding how to create organized patterns. Um, it, you know, it occurred to me that the, the benefits of, of including more perennials uh, um, in our market gardens, our vegetable market gardens, um, could be better achieved when we had a, a ratio and a, a pattern and a system of organization around including them into the landscape. Um, and this comes from permanence in our garden beds. Um, and sometimes we have, um, you know, raised garden beds on the market garden and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we have a garden bed that we grow in and we consider it a raised garden bed, but actually it's just fluffed soil from the tiller. It's not really being raised. Um, and often we plow that whole field at the end of the year and then we recreate um, the beds every season. So it doesn't actually have that permanence. So the permabed system, you know, one aspect of it is committing to a permanent place in your field for your raised garden bed. This is not plowed at the end of the year. Uh, these beds may be reformed by pulling path material and reforming over, which achieves much of the same benefits of plowing um, in terms of you know, uh, helping prevent disease cycles through some soil coverage, uh, uh, helping to um, create a reforming um, to raise up in case there has been some settling but overall there's less settling because this isn't a bed that's formed from tillage. It's a bed that's formed from physical movement of the soil upwards. Um, and so part of the, the benefit of this can be seen as many other things such as soil health. And, um, but in terms of the, the integration of annuals and perennials, once you commit to permanent beds in your landscape and you can actually go through and even you know, number them or name them or whatever you want. Once you commit to that permanence, you commit to the opportunity to take a single bed and convert it to a guild of plums, cherries, you know, um, currants, gooseberries, elderberries, etc., uh, as something that not only serves as a windbreak within your farm, but as a, a, a long long-term source of diversified income that's not in the same basket as an annual vegetable because it doesn't respond to drought conditions and to market fluctuations in the same way because it's really a different beast. And if you have permanence in your bed system, you can commit a bed to a, a perennial and still maintain annual efficiency around it. Um, instead of say having to pick some strange space that creates a wedge in terms of your plow patterning, uh, et cetera. And then the next step there is that you can start to create patterns. Um, how many annual beds to perennial beds do you create? And what is the, the relationships that you can create between the perennials uh, and the annuals and between uh, the perennials and other perennial beds that you might design guilds for? So that was the big, uh, the big step for us you know, uh, uh, about 15 years ago when we started to, to create this system was committing to that permanence and then, and then understanding the opportunities that that presented us. 
Talking about those opportunities, can you explain some of the ones that you expected to happen and ones that were emergent or surprising as these uh, perennial systems started to mature and have benefits for the ecosystem as well as for the customer side? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, a lot of the, the struggle that, you know, I faced as an annual based market gardener and I experienced from other people talking at conferences was the, the, what, it, what it meant to invest in perennials when as market gardeners were very used to as farmers in general of annuals cash cropping too, we're used to an annual investment and an annual return. So the idea of making an investment where you don't have return for several years um, is something that you have to um, you know, wrap your mind around. And so part of the work we were doing is looking at um, how that investment was paying us back in the long term, but also looking at ways that it was paying us back in the short term. And examples of that uh, included being able to produce high quality summer spinach and salad greens in the, in the shadows and in the protection of perennial bed guilds. And, um, you know, I was just making a ton of money growing um, high quality salad greens and it, in the spring. And if you can keep it going in the summer, it's even more profitable. Um, but you need to prevent bolting. Um, we, you know, where I am in Canada, we get really, we're continental. So we get really cold, cold winters and we get really hot summers. I mean, it gets hot. So um, this was a great solution to show how investing in perennials um, is a good long-term investment because I have diversified income. Um, you know, within a few years, you have raspberries you can add to your CSA basket. And then after that, you start to see um, cherries. And then after that, you start to see plums and then hazelnuts and pears and apples. Um, but at the same time, we were seeing short-term immediate return in terms of improving the quality of our annual production. And one of those examples is being able to grow um, summer salad greens um, to better quality and more consistently. I love hearing that because so many people are worried about having too many trees too close to their market garden, saying that they can either shade out some of the things that they want to grow or it'll bring in... Uh, birds or other predatory wildlife that will start to destroy some of their annual crops. Um, it's great to hear that there are benefits, especially on like that shade side, which a lot of people just kind of have to get over in their minds that it, it can be a huge advantage, especially to some of those more delicate crops, depending on what your climate is. Tell me more about the benefits to the soil and the overall biodiversity that assisted with other aspects of the business. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and just to touch on the shade too. And that's why it's important to come up with ratios. And so a lot of the research we're doing right now at the Ecosystem Solution Institute is creating examples of various ratios that can apply into different scales of production. Um, because that's how you're able to see where you can get more benefit from the perennial integration with the annuals um, and not necessarily, you know, overshadow because a certain ratio will eventually achieve an ecosystem mimicry that's a forest. Well, that's fine if you wanna get into literally uh, food forestry, which is different than a food woodland, which is different than a, an edible meadow 
ecosystem. So we break down all of our ecosystems and we don't um, just subscribe to a concept of a food forest, but rather to an edible ecosystem. And you can choose your ecosystem and design your ratio accordingly. Um, but then to jump onto soil, that was another thing that really struck me um, um, back in the day was I was, you know, analyzing the soils of my farm. And I noticed that up on the glacial moraine ridge, which is just that big dump of um, you know, mixed um, textured material from boulders the size of trucks to you know, sand, silt, and clay. Up on that ridge, that glacial ridge, that was where there was the darkest soil, even though it was the, the most stony and rocky, because that's where you know, the saving grace of biodiversity, uh, there's um, land that wasn't able to be tilled and farmed, and so large trees had been left. So the soil that had been um, forming there as these trees were depositing their leaf fall, these uh, maples and oaks and such, uh, became just like the richest chocolate brown soil. Um, so the benefit of these uh, additions of organic matter in situ um, is really, really advantageous when you consider A, um, the fact that it uh, protects soil life over the winter by providing a cover. And this is important for um, having soil life that's readily active again in spring. They didn't have to go deeper into the ground. B, it's uh, fresh additions of, of organic matter every year uh, into your garden that you don't have to bring in. You know, I often joke that farming is really a business of moving stuff places. You know, we, we move inputs into the field, we move outputs out of the field. So some of our work here is trying to find more in situ solutions. So if we can create compost in situ and then distribute it by simply pattern movement away from composting beds and any perennial bed can be understood as a source of quality compost and when it fits within the design of a triad or a three bed unit that we use, um, we're able to see that those beds just adjacent are really improving in their soil health uh, quite quickly. And then we can move it out from there if we want as well. So um, it protects soil life, it adds organic matter. Uh, the roots are breaking up and improving drainage. And as we all know, drainage is really important for productivity in agriculture. So when we create regular patterns patterns of perennial hedges uh, into our farm landscape, we're getting regular drainage systems that aren't just trying to throw the water into the, the ditches so that it can run quickly away, you know, down to the, you know, the nearest river uh, to the sea, but rather finding solutions to get drainage while localizing those water reserves. Um, and so that's what these, these trees do as well, as also stopping snow in, in these strips so that we have a slower melt so that we're also slowing that period of water rush, reducing the intensity of the melt period. So again, more water can be absorbed into the soil locally because we're giving it the time to do so. A bare open field uh, is just completely unnatural. There's, there's no system that exists uh, no ecosystem that exists that does what we do in agriculture. Um, and, and so that's why we have so many problems, I, 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 I would think. So let's, let's go into some detail about that triad system because it's interesting from a design perspective, but can you give me an example of an actual triad that you implemented on your farm and why you chose the different cultivars that you did and how they work together? 
Yeah, for sure. So for the permabed system, um, because it's a system that, I mean, it can be, it can be brought down to the micro. Again, I talk about that more in the edible ecosystem solution, but in the permaculture market garden, we really look at more macro solutions and the triad is the unit of guild design. It's a three bed unit of guild design. So if your perma beds are, you know, four foot wide or five foot wide, or if you're on the largest scale, I would maybe recommend five and a half to six foot wide. Um, again, based on the equipment you use, are you using a BCS walking tractor? Are you using a small compact tractor? Are you using a mid-sized tractor, um, et cetera? If you're on hand tools, you'll be smaller. But anyways, regardless, the three beds makes a really good unit for guild design, and we call that the triad. Um, an example of a guild is um, something that takes into consideration a few different things. And I approach guild design uh, um, more from um, a point of view of first, um, what I call umbrella management and essentially how you manage um, your crops efficiently and then get into choosing plants that companion well for other reasons. Because in my experience, um, having diversity of plants automatically instills in the landscape those ideas of pest confusion, pest deterrence, you know, biodiversity benefits, improvement of soil. So I don't design my guilds from that starting point because you may end up forgetting to design around really important things such as efficiency of harvest and accessibility. And so an example of how I start from this point of view would be that if I had three beds in my, in my triad, the center bed would go into a key species or a key guild. And that would usually be those plants that are um, the longest maturing or the largest plants because I really wanna design around them. If I plant trees that have a solid stem in the middle, um, that bed really becomes something I can no longer drive over, but I wanna be able to drive adjacent. So if I put a guild of say fruit trees in that middle bed, uh, perhaps I put in um, something like a dwarf cherry as the key species and then I have other companions I find later, the adjacent bed, I wanna make sure that at least one of these adjacent beds has good access. So does that mean that I leave it bare so that I can drive a tractor alongside for easy harvest? Or do I find an opportunity for an alley crop that's gonna allow accessibility? So an example of that would be, why not plant asparagus there? Because if I plant asparagus, I get an early crop, which is beneficial to the bottom line of the farm, but these crops don't prevent me accessing my, my cherries or my plums or my fruit trees later because the asparagus is finished You know, maybe at fronds, you can mow it and you can drive right over it without actually having any effect on the crop because your your wheat you know your tires are in the path and the bed top is you know safe underneath the belly. If I put um, uh, a, a crop of raspberries uh, in this other bed over here on the sunny side, I could find that those raspberries are getting good harvest access because on the other side from it, um, outside of that perennial 
triad, I'm now into my annual garden. And so as long as the crop over there is one that allows me to have access to my raspberries for picking, for instance, it could be an early spinach or an early uh, radish or something like that, I'll have good access for picking my raspberries. And at the same time, my raspberries are able to give a little bit of shade and protection on that sunny side um, against my fruit trees, which in our environment, we get sun scald on the fruit trees from a lot of reflection off the snow in the wintertime. So we're getting a little bit of protection there. Um, and at the same time, by not integrating the raspberries in line, in this case with the fruit trees, which is possible, you can do a fruit raspberry guild. But one of the benefits for a larger farm of integrating the raspberries in their own bed is that raspberries can benefit from being mowed uh, and being recomposted and allowing to regenerate. And you can't do that the moment you integrate it with the, the cherries or plums, et cetera. So I consider that a regenerative perennial and I put it in its own bed or sometimes I do entire guild designs around that. And it also allows you the opportunity of harvesting those suckers super efficiently in order to propagate them out into other places on the farm because you can move through and undercut that entire raspberry bed. So that would be what I would consider a base design for a triad, a bed in raspberries, a bed in uh, a chosen fruit, and a bed in asparagus. The asparagus being uh, doubling as an alley, the fruit trees being your key species that you're designing around, primarily understanding access, and then a regenerative raspberry bed over here for efficient picking, distribution of future plants. And then you would diversify within that, choosing other plants that you might want. You might decide to grow gooseberries in between those fruit trees because they do well in that dappled shade. Uh, you might decide to pick other ground covers and other herbs, um, perhaps timing um, um, some herbs to have pollen that ready just before the fruit trees that are your key variety because you want to make sure the bees are already in the neighborhood. So then we start to design around those, those um, other ecosystem services. So I guess to encapsulate that, I design with a three-bed triad and the permabed system, and I work from the point of view of efficient management. I call it umbrella management because I try to make sure that everything that's under that umbrella of that guild are, are things that work well together. You don't want to put a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of um, entities under an umbrella that aren't actually going to be managed in a similar way or have, or have sharing of management. So design around sharing of management, around companionship of management, because the other type of, of companionship, that's the easy part. That's the easy part, finding, finding things that are biodiverse, finding things that, you know, companion well in terms of pest management, things like that. That's, that's not the part. But the hard part in guild design for commercial growers is creating management efficiency because we all work, you know, quite intensively over the course of the summers. I know you all appreciate. So that's, uh, that's the starting point, And then we go from there. All right, so let's talk about some of the other aspects of management. Certainly getting your irrigation system right from the beginning is going to be key. And it's one of the things that we were talking about among the other market gardeners in this group before you showed up. Can you tell me about how you plan the irrigation system to accommodate these perennial plantings? Yeah, well, uh, you know, for irrigation, my rule of thumb is first um, healthy soil because healthy soil holds water. So then you're better in drought. Uh, and healthy soil drains, so then you're better uh, being able to get in. So first of all, 
by having a permabed system with raised permanent beds, investing in that, and by integrating annuals and perennials, my beds are drier sooner when I want them drier and they stay moist longer when I want the water. So that, that's always number one. Then I go to, you know, the next layer, which is, which is you know, a hoses and, and drip and sprinklers and water source and et cetera. Um, and then my, my next thing I would say is, you know, have a system that is, um, has several backups for water source because, you know, irrigation hoses, you know, you can have as many sprinklers and everything you want, but it, at the end of the day, it comes down to the source. How much water do you have when you need it? Um, so, you know, what we have been working on, uh, uh, you know, on the farm and the Institute over the years is now something that is a three source system. So we have water catchment off of our barn, which collects in tanks and that's a reserve. And then we pump from that reserve uh, into the fields. But that system that, that is uh, pumping from that tank um, is also connected to a well. So if there is not enough water in the tank from the roof, we supplement it from the well. And we're glad that it goes into the tank because we don't want to shock our plants with a bunch of well water um, in the middle of July. They don't want that. And then that system is also in conjunction with a pond fed system so that we're able to actually irrigate directly from a pond as well. And while irrigating from the pond, it tops up the tanks. So then we're able to um, choose not to irrigate from the pond in the future. And we've, our tanks are topped up in case it hasn't been raining as well. And then the pond system is a bit stepped right now so that we're, we're creating more wetland around the pond um, so that we are balancing how much we draw from the pond while not removing um, so much water that we are harming the ecosystem there. Because the reason we're able to dig a successful pond is because this was originally a wetland in a site that had been converted to a, you know, a very, a very lush hay field, but one that was also very hard to access a lot of the time because it was so wet. Um, and now what we're doing is we're um, furthering our water resources by creating bioswales uh, in the field so that just like you can take a, a, a what's so cool about the permabed system, uh, you know, is, is that each bed you can assign a value. So in this case, you can take a triad in the permabed system, but decide that it's going to become a, a linear pond. Or in this case, we're building bioswales where the two outer beds are going into water-loving species like elderberry for market. The middle bed is being excavated out. So it's becoming a, you know, an upside down permabed. It's a permabed whose crop is water harvest. Uh, and we're creating bioswale layers, and then we're seeding in um, native, uh, uh, wet-loving uh, uh, flower species, you know, water-loving, uh, uh, native water-loving um, uh, flowers and um, uh, other, you know, prairie species, so that we're getting uh, native habitat, water conservation, water for water-loving species, so we're using the water again, um, so it doesn't leave the land. I, it drives me nuts. All this water leaving the land I, uh, is a little aside. I'm working on a on a, a restoration project for a gravel pit in conjunction with a township, and like they just want to reslope this gravel pit so that all the water runs to the ditch. And at the same time, I fought really hard to conserve this big pit 
that was in the middle that's filling with water and it's been abandoned for 30 years. So it's full of trees. And I'm like, just send the water there. Like why, like, why, why, like this is a, a piece of land that's gonna be completely, you know, earth can be all moved around anyway. So it's not gonna cost any money. Like it's all happening anyways. But the idea that we have in our, in our land management systems is like always like get rid of water you know, drain it, get rid of it, drain it, get rid of it, move it away, move it away. And we should be sinking it and storing it and creating places for it so that we can have it when we need it. So, um, and then I guess just to wrap up the irrigation side of things, um, in terms of vegetables, if it's transplanted, I use drip because if it's transplanted, the bed can be mulched. Mulch helps the production of the vegetable uh, with with water conservation already, and so if it's and and, and I and if it's mulched, I'm not going to try to weed it with a mechanized weeding method. I'm using mulch as my weeding method. So if it's transplanted, it's mulched. If it's mulched, it's drip. If it's seeded, it's it's a micro sprinkler, and that and that and that's my choices. So first, soil health, water conservation, multiple sources. You know, like NASA. And, and then drip for transplants and sprinkler for seeded crops. Do you have any recommendations on specific drip irrigation or sprinkler systems? Well, I mean, I think that like the systems are fairly um, ubiquitous around the world in terms of like the technology that exists. I work with a company out of Quebec here and um, for the sprinklers, I like something called the Excel Wobbler. Um, it, it has a softer, um, uh, like raindrop style, um, those impact sprinklers aren't great because they're really hard. You can compact your soil with sprinklers, essentially, and you can compact the top layer so then your soil's not able to absorb more water. So the, the ones that mimic rain um, are better in terms of not over uh, packing it. And I guess I would just say again, you know, it's easy to overwater and not, and you know, because you water and then the soil looks dry again. And so it's easy to think that you need to water more than you really need to, you know? Um, and this is why it's good to have, again, the hedgerows and stuff that's, uh, that's uh, removing the issue of um, just water loss from wind. Um, we have a, quite a windy site. So for me, like that was a huge difference. Um, for trees, I love, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, it's kind of like a heavy duty um, drip tape. It's called Blue Line. And um, it's, you know, it's great. It's really heavy duty. And honestly, if I was doing a lot of vegetables right now, um, I probably would go to using the, the like tree, you know, vineyard, like heavy duty drip tape, even for my vegetables, um, just because you can, you could use it. And I'd probably just, you know, shift it into one bed uh, at the end of the year as like a storage place for it because it wouldn't, it won't, it won't get destroyed by mice and stuff like that. And you won't have to bother wrapping it up. So I, I like these supplies, but I always try to um, find solutions where, um, you know, I'm, I'm not having to buy supplies all the time. And I'm, I like things that are reusable, you know, so. Love it. Yeah. That's really good information. Now let's switch gears a little bit before I hand it over to our listener questions and talk a bit about the business side of running a market garden, because like we were discussing before this conversation, that is often the sticking point or the point of failure for people who have no issue raising the crops themselves and managing the ecosystem. For some of us that comes easier than the actual business side. 
So uh, can you sure. talk from your own experience about how you made the profitability of the business work in all of the dynamics of a living system that you had to manage? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's definitely, you know, often that is the fact, like, you know, once you, once you learn a system and you create your own systems too, right? Because I, I truly believe in model designs that are, you know, adapted and adopted to your situation. We're all, you know, innovating a system that works for us. Once you succeed at finding your rhythm, usually you're right. There's, it's not hard to produce a lot. So um, it's about selling it. It's about, not overproducing so that you um, are uh, failing, but you're only failing because you're doing so well. So growing slowly is really important because, you know, if you end up with a overproduction of delicata squash and you can't do anything with it, you know, you, it costs you a lot of money. Um, and even though you're like, you're like a successful grower because you didn't manage to market it, you feel like you failed and your pocketbook shows that you essentially failed because you have the expense, but not the income. So um, planning ahead for your outlets is really important. Really understanding where you're selling your product is really important. All of that needs to be done in the winter. It needs, like you should not be in the summer thinking at all about where your food is going you should absolutely be like, it goes to this many CSA, it goes to this grocery store, it goes to this wholesale buyer. Um, all of that, all of that needs to be determined ahead of time. And if you don't have those sources, then don't plant it at all. Because better to take those beds that are in, um, that are available that could go into like extra delicata squash, better to put them in cover crop. There is nothing more beautiful than a bed full of cover crop that you don't have to do anything. Like it's working for you. There's nothing more beautiful than cover crop beds working for you with very little management uh, for you. So, um, and in, or take that energy and put that extra energy into perennials that you can start the investment in the perennial and then work to find good buyers as they grow rather than investing in annuals that you don't have market for. So um, that would be a key thing. The other thing what I, what I did too is I, I tried to really understand specifically what my enterprises were on the farm. Um, and I, I created a model uh, that we use called Guild Enterprise Production. So just like you have a guild of say annual vegetables as a, a, you know, a, a guild crop or a guild of perennials, I created a guild of businesses and, and by really defining what my three businesses were, it allowed me to be at peace, to focus on those real businesses and not to easily allow other little ideas to slip in and start to distract me from what I was doing and what was making me money and what was helping the farm be successful. Um, by really defining what your businesses are, you're able to be diversified, but focused and not uh, end up you know, running down too many um, rabbit holes on any new kind of idea. I would always bounce it back against my holistic goal and against my guild enterprise production and say, hold on, where does this fit within my business model, which is already a diversified business model? You know, you can have... Um, you can have flowers on your farm that are helping pollinators uh, as part of your fruit production without necessarily actually having honey. Hmm. You know, or selling you can, cut flowers. 
or selling cut flowers, you know, like you can. So what I found is that, at, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of biodiversity. I mean, I, I essentially think it's like the one thing that I'm most interested in this world. So, um, and I'm particularly interested in profitable biodiversity because that is a, a, a gateway to making sure that we return to the biodiverse world that we want. If it's not profitable, it ain't gonna happen. So if we are really focused, um, what I found is that as I focused on um, a limiting of what my, my production was, I ended up with a more biodiverse farm. You would think it would be the opposite, but that's not what happened. Because as I focused, I succeeded. And as I succeeded, I integrated diversity into other ways as kind of companionships but it was all oriented around the, the global sphere of enterprise businesses. So, so I think that's really important. I think those are kind of some big takeaways I could say is that, you know, make sure that you do your research and you orient yourself in terms of where you're going to sell uh, way ahead of time and make sure that you really define uh, what your micro businesses are and you, and you stick to that. And you only, you only vary from that if you're really conscious of it. It's not that you can't change your businesses or evolve your businesses. We all do this. This is life. It's that we, we never want to do it just because. Another example of that is a tractor or a certain define the way you grow. So don't do it unless you are doing it from a point of view of I'm doing this because this is my, my business plan. It's really easy to get pulled off on tangents, especially when we get into like emergency mode in the summer, you know, where you just start throwing, you know, solutions at something that haven't had the time to think them through. And then they end up defining the way that you grow later. So. Excellent advice there. And it's echoed by a lot of the others that have experience in this conference so far and talking about how in the beginning, there was just so much going on. And over the years, as they started to become more confident in their business model, it all started to simplify and they just cut any of the fat that was not absolutely necessary to keep that business running and to keep their plants healthy. Uh, I'm going to leave it to the participants now to ask any questions and if you want to, uh, if you want to ask it yourself, just raise the hand so I know who to call on. Otherwise, you can type it in the chat and I'll read it out for you, who, whichever person wants to go first. All right, well, they're not jumping to, to talk, but I've got some questions here from before, one of which was from Alex about why you would not want to suddenly start irrigating with well water in the middle of July in your market garden. Yeah. Well, so, so I always work from a, a system of mimicking natural, natural ecosystem. So natural ecosystem, uh, plants very early, early in the spring, um, they would have cold meltwater um, around them. Uh, and and they, they, they've adapted with that. Um, but in the, in the summertime, you know, in my ecosystems, uh, in where I am in temperate North America, um, there wouldn't be ice cold water um, you know, or, or, or essentially, you know, the water that we get from, from, you know, 12 feet below ground and, and deeper, um, that wouldn't fall from the sky as cold rain, the rain water is warmer. So we're wanting to create a, um, an irrigation system that is as close as possible, uh, is mimicking a natural watering, uh, system. 
And so that we don't shock the plants. This is also really important in greenhouses. So in a greenhouse, you'll often have like a 250 gallon tank uh, as well. And water will be put into that tank. And then it'll have a jet pump that pumps out of that tank um, that's used to water the, um, the transplants. Okay, can I can I elaborate on my question because I'm wondering, I mean, one one reason why I'm hesitant to to uh, run the water through a tank is that I don't have an I don't have electricity on my side. So for that, I would need to use an engine pump, which would create noise and pollution. So in the tunnel, it wouldn't be an option for that reason. I would have to have it outside of the tunnel. And the second reason is I'd be hoping, and maybe I'm uh, kidding myself thinking that, that the water running through all those meters of hose line, then going out of the sprinkler at a height of, in my case, one meter, feet, that the water by the time it hits the ground has ambient temperature. Is that not that easy? No, I, I think you're right on. I think that, you know, like I said again, and, I, and I'll just emphasize this and then I'll go on, is that I always believe in the idea of a model design that's, uh, that's you know, something that's a model of understanding. And then you choose to adopt that design and you adapt it to your situation. So for instance, in your situation, you don't have power. I can appreciate that. I farmed off grid for 15 years. And part of what I did was I did flood irrigation. So I did, I pumped up two storage tanks on my ridge and then I allowed the, the um, gravity to pressurize and I understood exactly how many feet of drip tape I could open up at one time to use that gravity. Um, and I was getting that warm water scenario as well. Um, but certainly if you are running the water through a whole bunch of line, um, that's exposed to the sun for a period of time, it will definitely warm up. And, and that, that's definitely a solution. So at the end of the day, the question is, what's the temperature of the water, you know, hitting your plants, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. If, and, 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 the, and the answer is it, it's better that it's not the, the cold, cold temperature of well water, that, it's, that it warms up a little bit. And, you know, there's a, there's a range of success in there and none of this is going to break the bank in terms of your success. But that's, I would say that that's one of the benefits of, of the storage system with the tank. But the other benefit of it, which is my primary reason for doing it, is I love to capture my rainwater off my roof. You know, I, I love it. It's, it's free water. So, you know, the new biodiversity center we just built at the, at the edible biodiversity conservation area we're building has, uh, the whole barn was designed to maximize roof catchment. So it's just one, you know, one angle of roof, one long eaves trough to catch it all, um, to get all that free water. And, and that's just built into my psyche because I grew up in a, you know, in a, in a mountainous desert, you know, arid area and water catchment was like, you just do it. It's second nature. And where I am now, it's not second nature because it's actually a wetter climate. But I'll tell you, you know, there's been hundred year droughts here. You know, I've talked to the, to the, to the old timer farmers and, and they've told me, yeah, that drought, you know, was like, you know, I'd never seen it in my lifetime. And, you know, the records are showing that we're having these extreme, extreme droughts. So it doesn't matter what your climate is. Um, water census is, is smart. So I would say that you're, you're probably good with what you're doing. Sounds, sounds good to me. 
and um, you're working within the constraints of your system. And so, you know, that works as well. And, um, and that for me, my number one thing is water catchment, but it warming up to ambient temperature is a bonus. Nice. All right. I'm going to throw to Andre who's had his hand up. Go ahead, buddy. Hi, Zach. Hey. Um, first of all, congratulations for the presentation. It's been amazing. It's, it's probably the first time I, I actually listened to a serious conversation about how to make uh, perennial based or agroforestry systems work financially. Uh, we, in Portugal, we have uh, quite a dry climate and there's a lot of experiments being done, but usually um, the people behind it don't have actually uh, an experience selling uh, food, you know, producing and selling. So that's, uh, it's, it's, it makes all sense. Everything you said to, uh, until now, it's really amazing. I would, I would ask you, how do you prepare the beds? Yeah, awesome. Thanks for the question. I love Portugal. I, I wrote part of my book while uh, traveling through Portugal and, and uh, kind of kicking around here and there. And there's a the part that really, I do. All, all of the Portugal is so awesome. Come back um, whenever you want, man. <laughs> I will. I will. It's on my. It's on my list. To go back. I. I. Yeah. So um. So the way to make perma beds differs in terms of your scale. So um, on a really small scale, you know, a, a good ergonomic shovel, um, a broad fork, you know, ways of bringing in compost. Like this is all achievable. It's about. Um. It's about working with the the lines in your landscape. That what I call the common lines. Um, on a larger scale, um, you can set up discs uh, that go behind your tractor tires. Um, and this could be something you have built yourself or fabricated at a, at a, a welding shop where you take, you know, a disc from like an old uh, tractor disc set and you just put one disc behind each tire and they're oriented to throw soil uh, into the space between the tires. And that creates your initial bed. Now, on an even bigger scale, you can get even larger discs uh, that really can form up the beds quite high. Um, you can get like 24 inch wide discs and even doubles of them. Um, and these can help bed shape and form that, that bed as well. So um, there's a few different ways. On a project that we have been working on in Winnipeg in, um, in the suburbs, we've done uh, almost a three acre property completely converted to um, market garden and uh, food forest. And um, that one we did with framing it, framing in the perma beds using small square bales and then infilling. So this is like a culture model for building the uh, perma beds. So there's multiple ways to approach that. Um, and I, it just depends on the scale and the situation and the equipment that is, that is used. So I think we lost our friend there on his drive, but that's, <laughs> no worries luckily we're recording this this will go off later um yeah. i'm curious too what scale can this work on and like as how small can you go with these perma bed systems well so in 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 the edible ecosystem solution book that looks at at at, at starting as small as 25 square feet in terms of design and and I still consider this the perm bed system because this is really the design methodology of creating highly organized systems, highly pattern-based systems um, that, are, that are focused on efficiency as the gateway to abundance and edible biodiversity on homes, homesteads, and farms. So 
I say you can get as small as 25 square feet in this model because you can have an entire ecosystem within 25 square feet. But as you get a little larger, you really start to see the kind of the, the beauty of the bed-based patterning. And so, you know, at three beds, at whatever length, you have a triad. And so you can choose to have, you know, uh, an annual triad that's designed this way or a perennial triad, or you can have a triad that's blending those two. The moment you get to, you know, a couple triads, you know, let's say two triads in annuals and one triad in perennials, you're really starting to have the beginning of a permaplot. And again, at whatever length. So I, I consider a permabed, you know, if you have, if you have a, a, a permabed that's just five feet long, I consider this just a guild spot. That's 25 square feet. If you have a permabed that's over 15 feet, then I, I would consider that a, a full bed. Anything under 15 feet, I kind of consider it a, like a micro landscape. It's a, it's, a, it's a guild spot. It's a piece of land that's in a guild. It's more landscaping. Once you go over 15 feet, you have a real garden bed. So then, you know, three permabeds at 15 feet, you have a triad, but they could be up to 300 feet. And then when you have, you know, maybe three triads, you start to have a plot. So um, once you get to having, you know, about 12 beds, you know, you really start to be on, let's say 12 beds by 25 feet or 12 beds by 50 feet. You're really starting to have the potential to do quite a lot of organized patterning that you might want to see for a mark, like a market garden style. And then, you know, you just go from there. Like it can go up to any scale you want. So, you know, we're doing this on 150 acres right now. So it's, uh, you know, sky's the limit. That's awesome. Have we got any other questions lined up at the moment? Um, yeah. By all means, Dory, go for it. Uh, yeah. So uh, first of all, great information. Um, I wanted to ask something about the uh, water management that you mentioned and to ask you if uh, if you thought about uh, and have used key line design to capture water and if not why not mm -hmm. yeah um essentially what i work with is that the the more steep your land is the more you want to build your beds um on contour um, and the more your land is steep, the more you want to build them on contour and the more you probably want to lean towards perennials as your dominant production. Because growing annuals on hillsides, you know, is just not as conducive as growing perennials. So, and the, and so the more that my land is more gentle and flat, the more my permabeds are roughly on contour, but I don't get too nitpicky about it because I'm creating permanent beds anyways, and I'm having natural perennial breaks all the time that it really helps manage erosion as well. Um, and then with the key line design, I don't do that specifically on my land because where I am managing it, the way that I'm managing it, the really sloping areas, I'm doing a completely different management system. I'm actually developing what I call a pit and mound orchard because my really steep land has natural pits and natural mounds that have developed from the settling of land in the glacial moraine. And these natural pits that have formed, and they literally are like, you know, 
four foot diameter by a foot or so deep natural pits. They've also naturally accumulated organic matter. So they actually, you know, on the ridge side, you can't stick your spade in without hitting a rock. But for whatever magic that's happened through nature and geomorphology, you can stick your shovel in 18 inches deep, pure brown soil. So what I'm doing in that landscape is I just don't see a need to go in there and disturb my, my hillside through a lot of, you know, work and rearranging of the soil. I'm just putting fruit trees in every pit. And then in my lower area, I don't think that working on key line is necessary because the land is fairly gentle. And so what I'm doing is I'm working off a really organized framework that works off the current fence lines of the farm and the current roadways of the farm. And it's really organized. It's really easy to get in there with, with small tractors. You know, I have some cultivating tractors like a, an alley G, you know, and a farm mall and things like that. It's really easy to work with nice straight beds in there. And I'm building bioswales and integrating perennials in regular intervals to really maximize um, slowing of runoff, sinking of water, prevention of erosion. And so I'm choosing all those techniques um, as opposed to creating too much difference. And I guess I would add to this that it, when you work on contour using key line and working on contour in terms of the way that you're managing your land, um, that lends itself to um, like silva pasture really well, because you can plant a row of trees. And if that row of trees kind of of like wiggles and moves and has its odd shape following that line and then the, and then you have another row of trees that's you know at a certain distance but if it's not consistent the amount of grass that's growing in between that doesn't matter that much for someone going to cut hay or for animals that are going to graze but it, when it comes to intensive permaculture market gardening when it comes to market gardening you really benefit a lot by saying there's a set number of beds between these perennial rows of trees. And by having those beds have a consistent bed top, you really can't manage a market garden efficiently if your bed tops change and the number of beds in a, a plot change. So that's where I really feel like if your land is really steep, you should be on contour, you should be focusing on perennials and silvopasture. If you're on flatter land, you should work more on just building nice straight beds. They can have gentle curves in them, but if you start to find that you're 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 having all sorts of different widths of beds, you're going to you're going to hit more problems than than you're going to solve by being more strictly on contour and and use of regular bioswales and 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 perennial fruit hedges are going to help that in a similar way in terms of the the reasons that we want to do key lines, storing water, preventing erosion. I'd just like to say something quickly. Uh, it, it, uh, I see key line design being uh, used a lot in Portugal. And again, people forget that uh, Yeomans uh, designed the key line or invented it in very gentle slopes. And, uh, and first is, is not only also key line cultivation, it's a whole system. And uh, people just want to do it all the time here. People spend a lot of money in Portugal uh, doing key line without being in context for key line. Just thinking that, oh, it's going to infiltrate the water better. It's going to take it to the ridges from the valleys. And it's nonsense yeah. most of the Absolutely. I, I like what you're saying, Andre, in, in the sense that I, I feel like, and part of my work in writing the permaculture market garden was also to sort of um, 
sort of stand up against this, this the permaculture, the trend in the permaculture movement, which is becoming a lot less serious, a lot more random. It's kind of like, oh, well, forests look really wild, so I should throw seeds everywhere. We need to have organization. And too much, we, we take an idea and we just assume it's correct, such as like the idea that comfrey is this like super, this super crop. And like, it's almost like, oh, you do permaculture culture well where's your comfrey it's like well hold on have you asked yourself why you might want comfrey or what the point is like permaculture like it's not about just taking things and saying well this is permaculture permaculture is not key line it's not comfrey it's yeah. it's none of these things and so yeah. you know they want silver bullets all the time like they want uh, or they want to to know that if you do this this and this then you're a permaculturist or this this and that and then you're regenerating and it's really context. It's all about context. Yeah. And, and for this reason, a lot of the way I frame my work now, even though, I mean, I like I like I do I do love permaculture. My dad was a permaculture designer taught with Bill Molson. So I'm I'm sort of like second gen, um, you know, I guess. But I've really started to frame my work around edible ecosystem design, um, because when we when we when we appreciate that the teacher is the ecosystem. And then we really always bring our questions back to that. What are we thinking about in our design? What does this look like in a natural scenario? How do we organize it so it works in a human landscape? Then that, if that's always my framing for everything, what am I looking at in terms of this irrigation? How would this look in a natural scenario? How do I frame it in an organized way for human landscapes to be profitable and efficient? That's always the framing of it, you know, and, and that way I go right back to the teacher, which is the, the soil, the rock, the herb, the tree, you know, the way the sun is. And I, and I always reframe the question around that rather than a, a concept like comfrey, which is a human made concept that comfrey is good, you know, um, same with key line. That's a human concept. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it, it was framed from someone observing natural systems but we always have to bring it back to the source when we want to yeah. when we want to look at it in our scenario you know i'm starting to work with with the with uh, uh arctic landscapes um and building inroads with inuit communities and this is a whole nother whole nother can of beans you yeah. know like yeah. holistic context is important i think holistic management uh, plays a, a big uh, role nowadays in decision making because you will you will put you making directions towards the center of your context whatever it is it's a very clever system of decision making absolutely absolutely having that is a good thing you know i i definitely i took some some holistic resource management courses back in the day and i really like that system them, especially the way that they do decision making and they always bounce their decisions off a holistic goal because again part of the the success or failure is is focus you know it's all about focus like if i had a magic penny for everyone i did a consult with and when i said like what do you want to do on your land and they're like well i want goats and i want chickens and i want an orchard and i want you know bees and i want vegetables and i want like and they name everything badass you could possibly do on like you know <laughs> the planet right and it's like okay but you're gonna like every one of those things take skill money you know like knowledge so when we focus we succeed and then we build guilds within our community. So, you know, at our suburban edible ecosystem project, we're focusing on 
fruit and we're focusing on native prairie restoration and we're focusing on um, you know, intensive vegetables and our neighbor is putting bees in our yard and they're managing the bees, you know? So, you know, you can create guilds within your community, guilds of farms, guilds of community members. And that's where, that's where we continue to have more and more biodiversity while still simplifying what I'm in charge of. You know, I want the bees, but I already have my specialty and I have my work cut out for me already. So I build those relationships. Yeah, it needs to make sense. Yeah. Every time if I do a consulting job now, I ask first is what's your holistic context? Or if you don't know what I'm talking about, tell me what you want. Because people want, again, like, what can I do with my land? I say, that's dangerous to get in there, to give uh, (laughs) ideas that people then won't follow. Because it's not their thing. Yeah. Well, Thanks. also, like like you mentioned, Zach, if you're trying to micromanage every aspect of a diverse ecosystem, the only way that humans have done that in the past is through collaborative communities. It wasn't one gung-ho dude with a big budget and a bunch of machinery who's like, I'm going to have bees and animals and orchards and market gardens. No, they, that kind of stuff was dispersed throughout a community it's how like the dehesa and the montado systems were run here on the iberian peninsula and you know each person kind of had their niche that managed a whole diverse ecosystem um i think that's probably a good place to wrap up zach you're a rock star it's always awesome to have you here before you go can you tell our participants where they can find your books and all of your amazing resources that you've got online yeah, for sure. Um, definitely um, pleasure to be with you all. Um, you can check out the ecosystem solution institute.com um, to see what we're doing. Um, you know, the book, a great place to get the book is try to get one of your local bookstores to bring it in if you're in Europe. Um, I can also ship them to Europe, but the shipping is pretty crazy. But if you want to buy it from me at the at the Institute, then um, send me a message ahead of time and I'll give you a discount so you can get the shipping so it's not so crazy. Um, We also have an online school called Ecosystem U. And so if you're really into some of this stuff that we're talking about, if this is your jam, um, you can can check out our Food Guild design course we have right now. Um, And we also have an intensive uh, ecosystem design uh, intensive course and um, you can kind of see and browse through what we're doing there. There you have it. Special thanks to Zach Lokes for sharing his knowledge and experience with the group. You can find his previous interviews on this podcast at regenerativeskills.com and find his books, his company, and his online courses at both zacklokes.com and ecosystemu.com. There's also a bonus video of a short presentation that Zach did during this call, but only really makes sense if you actually see the slides. And that's now available for all tiers of Patreon membership. And if you're not subscribed yet, you can start at just $5 a month. So check out the link on the homepage. And if you're interested in signing up for any of the great courses at EcosystemU.com, including Food Guild Design, Home Garden Pro, Permabeds, and Community Food Security, I've got links to all of them on the show notes page for this episode. Now, full disclosure, I do get a small commission if you buy through this link, but you also get a significant discount and it's a great way to support this show without having to donate directly. Now, if you happen to be a farmer anywhere in Europe who is working towards regenerative methods of production, we would love to hear from you. 
Climate Farmers is developing a whole suite of services and resources to help you along your journey. You can make a profile on our website to showcase your products and your progress. You can access our growing list of qualified consultants and designers to help you with any aspect of your farm. And we're working on tools to assist with monitoring the progress of your environmental regeneration, getting paid to enhance ecological services, selling directly to consumers, and we're developing an academy to get you all the education and training that you need to succeed. As a member, you'll also be able to help shape the direction of Europe's regenerative future and inspire others in the farming industries. So what are you waiting for? Sign up as a climate farmer today at climatefarmers.org. Now quickly before we wrap things up, I want to let you know the questions that we're going to be discussing and exploring on the Discord server this week. And those are, do you know of any indigenous species of trees and perennial crops like maybe berries or medicinal herbs? that could help with the biodiversity and the resilience of your annual crop cultivation? Out of that list of plants, which would be the most profitable or complementary to the crops that you already focus on? Remember, we're gonna be having this discussion on the Discord server, which you can sign up for directly on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now that wraps things up for this episode. Until next time, keep taking those little steps each day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.